Hey, it's Lynn Galadner, and this is the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm founder of the Your People Marketing and PR Agency, and I lead the Make Meaning Movement, a platform that helps purpose-driven visionaries and leaders do business with meaning. On this podcast, you'll hear stories of how people dare to take chances to live the life they want with meaningful work and purposeful days. There are many ways to fill your life with meaning. Join us at makemeaning.org to learn more. Now, on to the show. Jessica McCormick joins me today on the Make Meaning podcast. Jessica is the inaugural director of the Jewish Emergent Network Rabbinic Fellowship, and she has been with the fellowship since it launched in 2016. She has an MFA in writing from Antioch University and a bachelor's degree in journalism from University of Southern California. Jessica has worked in communications at a Jewish school. She's worked as a government publicist, in business affairs, and as an entertainment reporter. She says she is obsessed with stories, pie, and working toward a better world. She is also a fiction writer with several published short stories, a produced play, and a just-finished novel. Jessica, welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, wow, you have quite the creative background. And as a fellow MFA holder myself and published author, I definitely want to explore your writing side, which we will do a little bit later in the conversation. But first, I wanted to start by talking about your current role with the Jewish Emergent Network. So tell me what that is and what your work entails. So the Jewish Emergent Network is um, is a really unique organization in that it's it's barely an organization. It's a network of seven Jewish uh, communities. You might call them synagogues. They don't like to call themselves synagogues <laughs> across North America. None, none of them are affiliated directly with the big movements. Mm-hmm. And all of them are sort of breaking their own paths. And in a time when at least uh, anecdotally and via, you know, big studies, uh, we see that Americans and religion don't go hand in hand, and that religion is is sort of waning. These are all places with really dynamic leaders that have experienced exponential growth, at, at least pre-COVID, exponential growth. And so um, they came together to see, like, how could they raise each other up, and how could they work together to raise the field? And I came on in 2016 as their first staff member and really, really love this work. So tell me a little bit about your work. You know, what do you do? Um, and and just tell me about what an average day is for you with the Jewish Emergent Network. Yeah, so it's a great, great privilege to be able to work with the rabbis and other leadership of these communities. They have a central project that's sort of going to begin evolving uh, actually over summer 2020. But for the last many years, the bulk of my work has been running a fellowship for early career rabbis. Um, in which they get to be fully immersed in one of the seven communities and also travel to all of the communities to learn about the Torah and the best practices of of each of these places. Because although there is some similar DNA that binds these seven organizations, each is really unique and with its own personality, its own geography. And so we've been training early career rabbis, um, both in thought leadership and in entrepreneurial skills. So that's the that's the bulk of what I do. So, you know, a typical day might be spent in conversation with several of the leaders from the various organizations one-on-one in committees of those leaders. I spend a lot of time each day with 
the fellows and then planning, spent a lot of time planning in-person retreats. And obviously mm-hmm. right now, as everybody else's, we're pivoting very quickly into the digital space. Yeah. I mean, we're recording this in May and when this airs in July of 2020, um, it may be different. It may be similar, but I think we will be forever changed by this experience and think about, um, you know, our gatherings in a different light going forward. Um, But, you know, I want to tell you, my mother-in-law lives in Washington, DC. And when we visited most recently, uh, she mentioned Sixth and I, and I yeah. wasn't quite sure what it was, but I definitely wanted to check it out. So I wonder if you could just share with me a little bit um, where these innovative Jewish communities are and what makes them so innovative. Yeah. So for the most part, we're in major metropolitan areas across the U.S. We have Icar in Los Angeles, The Kitchen in San Francisco, the Kavanaugh Cooperative in Seattle, Mishkan in Chicago. In Washington, D.C., we have Sixth and I. And then we have two communities in New York City. We have Romemu and a community called Lab Shul. And each of them is pathbreaking and unique in their own ways. One thing that they have in common is dynamic rabbinic leadership. Um, in all but one cases, really in all cases, founding rabbinic leadership. Six and I is, is a little bit of a unique example. It was an old historic synagogue in the middle of D.C. that was going to be either torn down or converted into something else. And a group of stakeholders came in and saved it. But very early on, they brought mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. Rabbi Shira Stutman, who's still their rabbinic leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and each in its own way strives to reach Jewish people and Jewish adjacent people who might not have been reached or served by by existing communities or might not have had touch points with Judaism. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the services at each are really different, but really welcoming and accessible in all cases. And that doesn't necessarily mean um, that everything is transliterated into English, although in many cases it does. Mm-hmm. Often, often music is an access point for people. Mm-hmm. And each also offers a lot of diverse programming to reach is extremely, I, it's, it's not even right to say welcoming or open to interfaith families, mm-hmm. um, to Jews of choice, to people who are related to Jews, to Jews of color, because it's, um, the, the, so those are a number of different groups that might feel marginalized sometimes by other institutions, mm-hmm. because it's not really about being welcoming. It's about that's a part of the DNA and the fabric of who each of us are, but each goes about it in a really different way. It's interesting because um, we had it on the podcast a while back, the God Squad, which is a really cool group of local millennial rabbis who um, are sort of imagining this post-denominational Judaism and their access point is often music and we were just jamming in the studio. It was just so cool. Um, and I'll have links to that episode when we air yours. But uh, you know, I want to know what you think about this idea of post-denominational Judaism. It's just, I'm fascinated by it. I feel like it's its more than time, but I'm really not sure how to articulate it and, and how people can feel at home in something that, you know, there's, there's very um, distinct barriers and parameters to the denominations and they all serve a purpose and they all have beauty and they all have problems. And so how do we imagine a post-denominational Judaism? What does that look like? I think articulation, you hit it on the head, is one of the issues because just calling it post-denominational, then we're, we're putting a label on something that, yeah. uh, you know, for people who have sort of resisted labeling or resisted being a part of something in a formal way like that. There's a big tense and I feel that we're all inside of it. And I agree that the movements have their 
extreme strengths and they have the ability to do things very, very well. And actually when the network was launching, I wasn't a part of these, you know, sort of rabbinic and leadership conversations, mm-hmm. but I know that there was this, this question among some folks on the, on the outside of the network, do you want to be another movement? Mm-hmm. And the note was so vehement that then it sounded like we, we had an issue with the movements, which also we don't have. <laughs> I, I think it's, it's really tricky. Um, you know, and in certain cases, some of our synagogues, when they, when they opened, maybe other local synagogues became nervous, but by and large, we reach a different group of people. We ha- you know, we weren't desiring to siphon people off. And I really don't think that that was the impact. There are so, so many Jews mm-hmm. in, in America yeah. who aren't being reached. And I don't think that we have the answer for that. But one thing, when you talk about post-denominational practices, there is a certain amount of freedom to think about how you might reach people and to think more importantly than how you reach certain people, what are the practices that allow you to pivot, to evolve quickly and to meet changing needs? And when we look at the fellowship, for instance, we're not only thinking about how to train these early career rabbis in the best practices that we do, although certainly we can do that. We can say, Mm -hmm. look at how we do this and Mm -hmm. here's how we've evolved. But really, what are the skills that they'll need to serve coming generations of Jews and, and, and the Jewish adjacent? And, and think about it from that perspective. So not from the perspective of our practice necessarily has the answers for uh, all the forthcoming generations, but what skills do you really need to be able to meet the needs and to meet the needs with authenticity? You know, another thing that binds the seven of us is the way that we approach text and the way text is at the heart of uh, quite a bit of what we do. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, I grew up reform. I spent a decade in the Orthodox world and I've, I've call my home now conservative, but I really feel like I'm just Jewish. And so there are things that I do that might fit into each of those buckets and there are definitely things that don't. And, um, and so I have always found, you know, that I love being Jewish. I love being a part of the Jewish community. Um, but I don't necessarily call any one place home. And so I've tried to raise my kids with this notion of, you know, we're just Jewish. Why do we have to put labels on things? And so it's a really interesting conversation. And I think there are many people who feel that way, who love identifying with the Jewish faith, with Jewish culture, um, with the community, but don't know necessarily where their little niche is. Right. And I think that we live in a time when in all other ways, people's practices are radically individualistic, or at least they like to think that they are. And (laughs) um, being able to fit your family, you know, when families really are so beautifully diverse now, being able to fit your family into a preconceived notion can feel hard. Now, I don't always think that, 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 so the mainstream movements, I, I don't necessarily think that there's not a place for many different kinds of families in them. We're in mainstream cities, and we are just seven of, of hundreds of path-breaking communities around the country. We just happen to have networked together. There are so, so many folks doing this. But there are lots of cities or smaller metropolitan areas across the country where, you know, you you would rely upon movement synagogues to help your family and your community stay Jewish. So I do think that all sorts of people can fit at all sorts of different places. But I do also think that in a time when people really like to think of themselves and their families as, as unique, it's, it's good to be able to look for unique propositions. Now, it's also a time when community has waned and people really are looking for places to experience communal 
joy, communal grief, community action in many cases, social action and social justice as part of a group. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, all, and all seven of our Jewish Emergent Network places, as many synagogues do, offer that and offer that in a really authentic way. Yeah, it's interesting because, um, you know, I run a marketing and PR company and it was founded on the premise of this sense of distance and disconnect um, that really, I think, grew out of social media. You know, as social media became more and more prevalent and we were connecting with people over the distance and virtually, um, which was really a beautiful thing, you know, to find people you went to high school with or camp or whatever, and they live many, many miles away. And yet now you're reconnected. That's a beautiful thing from social media. But one of the disadvantages is that we have this illusion of being connected, but we're doing it from a remote place where we're sitting alone. And so I do think that that makes many people feel more lonely or not a part of things. And so there's a dichotomy that we're living with right now that is both hungry for community and for individuality. And so I think that's a really, it's a tightrope that we walk. And I think especially about people who aren't in the young family demographic, although believe me, I spend a lot of time also thinking about people in the young family demographic. <laughs> yes. But but if you're, if you're an adult, either a youngish adult or an older adult, where you don't have sort of pediatric age kids in the house, it can be even harder to find your community. Communities naturally come with kids. Yeah and camps and things like that. And you hope that there are lots of Jewish organizations to meet the needs, including the seven that I work with. But, but for millennials and for Gen Z folks who are on their own, who are hungry for community, it can be a little bit harder to find access points. And I, and I think we really work hard to do that. And I think the same for empty nesters mm-hmm. um, really or, or older, older people who never had children in the home. Yeah, um, who are looking to make meaning. Well, I just was going to speak about one of the joys of my job, which is being an enabler. You know, I mean, if you look at the Jewish Emergent website, you won't see me. You have to scroll down really far to see me and get my <laughs> email address. But it's a real joy to enable and amplify the work of these seven organizations. And I talk a lot about the rabbis because they're amazing. And so are the CEOs and executive directors I work with, but also the musicians and and all of the programmatic staff and everybody at these seven organizations. And I feel so lucky that funders have, have recognized the value of this and that fund this network and fund my role so that I can, you know, help enable the work that they're doing, each of them individually, but particularly as a whole. It's wonderful. And I encourage anybody listening to check out the Jewish Emergent Network. Um, I want to ask you a question about your personal journey, which I find fascinating. And I know that you've said that your second husband was Jewish by choice and was on his journey at the time that you witnessed how Jewish organizations impacted him. So I wonder how that influenced your career path. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it influenced my career path so much. I'll actually go back just one um, one step further. I had worked full-time before I had my my first two children who are now teenagers mm-hmm. in the motion picture, picture industry. And I stayed home with them when they were little. And in the five or six years I was out of the workforce, all of the things that impacted my daily life came from the nonprofit world. So, mm-hmm. or from municipal life, you know, mm-hmm. farmers markets, libraries, um, uh, parks, uh, children's services programming and, and Jewish programming. Mm-hmm. And I knew that when I went back into the workforce, I wanted to go back. I wanted to completely pivot and go into nonprofits, all these things that had been impacting my life. And, and I did, and I actually went into municipal government and right around that same time, I was falling in love with this person who was falling in love with Judaism. Hmm. And I mean, it sounds so silly, but I had like a lightning strike moment that that the, this community, in this case, Ikar, that um, gave my 
my husband, this person who I loved, such a rich new experience in a life in his life, such a rich new way to filter his life, such a such a deep way for him to find meaning and connection mm-hmm. was so valuable to me. I also could recognize things about my Judaism that I had taken for granted mm-hmm. uh, over my life. And and I absolutely wanted to go into this work and find a way to offer support to the people who were doing this work in the world. I love that. Um, we will come back to this later in the interview. You know, we talk here all about meaning and purpose and how people find their personal meaning and then let that infuse their the work that they choose to do um, so that they're impacting the world, making a difference. And um, so it's just exactly what you emblemize. I mean, it's just, it's wonderful. Um, but I want to pivot for a minute because um, I know you have spent so much of your life writing. And as a fellow writer, I, I really have to spend some time talking with you about writing and reading and books. And so tell me a little bit about your writing, what you love most about it, um, you know, and, and sort of where you are with your writing right now. So I'm sure as a writer, you also know that there uh, uh, many days it doesn't feel like a thing that I love at all, but just a thing that I'm <laughs> compelled that I'm compelled to do. I also don't hate it, although I like the editing maybe a little bit better. Yeah, I hate it. I feel compelled to do it. It's the way that I process the world and the way that I learn about the world and uh, you know continue to develop my my empathy and my understanding of the world is through reading. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I, I'm compelled to do it. It's a thing that I, I, I mean, I, I like to do it, but I also just stories live in me and, and I want to tell them. And, um, it's really gratifying to be able to help support myself and my family by working in a, you know, in a workplace that I find deeply fulfilling and also be able to write. Although the writing certainly takes longer. The novel, <laughs> I, I, I hope I could have written a novel more quickly, uh, if I wasn't working, if I, if I weren't working full time. Um, but I, I like to reflect things that I see and things that are deeply meaningful to me. The role of women in, in our society is something that I'm kind of obsessed with writing about. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I come from a place of relative privilege. I think everything when we talk about women is relative privilege, but, but a deep, deep amount of privilege in my life. Mm-hmm. And yet, and yet being a woman is, such a disadvantage in this world. And by the way, you know, when this comes out in July, we'll be many months deep into COVID and many, many women will have had to quit their jobs to make their families work. It is, it is absolutely the women who are going to be profoundly um, impacted by this the longest. And that, that fascinates me. Women's sexuality also really fascinates me that that has been true since I was a kid. I like the first time when you're a kid and you hear like, I don't know how old you are when you're told like boys think about sex blank times a day and girls don't. (laughs) And I was like, that doesn't seem right. And that's been like an ongoing fascination for me and how in fiction and, and this is, you know, you see it more and more how we can sort of rectify those types of misconceptions. So, so that's what I write about. And the, the novel that I just finished is set partially in the modern Orthodox Jewish world, the world that I have lived adjacent to, but have never been a part of. Mm-hmm. You just received a writing prize too. Tell me about that. I did. I'm so excited. I placed second. I was long listed and then I got the great news that I placed second in an award called the First Pages Prize, which is such a beautiful prize because it's for emerging writers and it gives you exactly what you need. You get, uh, you get time with an agent to mm-hmm. talk through your work and um, whether or not you sort of sign with that agent, you get time to talk about how to pitch work and how to deal with agents. You get developmental editing of your manuscript, which is invaluable and you get money. Wow. Congratulations. <laughs> is, That's so great. Which is, 
Great. And um, I just so appreciate uh, prizes for artists that really look at the, the fullness of what an emerging uh, artist might need. And so I'm very pleased about this. Very cool. Very cool. I'm so excited for you. Um, so I have to ask, because I, you know, I just make an assumption that writers read. And um, personally, I've been really consuming Howard Fast novels during the pandemic and just sort of I love when a novel transports me to another time or place or world or all of the above. So um, how does writing compare to reading for you? Like, are, do they go hand in hand? Do you have your go-to genre or book that just sort of is an anchor for you? Um, how, where does reading play a role in your life? Uh, it's so interesting to be talking about this now because I've only finished one one book in quarantine, which, yeah. is, which is crazy. It's, it's one of the things I've been able to do very little reading we're writing and that's so, it's so stressful. Um, yeah. Uh, but typically reading factors heavily into my life. The only time when I typically don't read extremely actively is when I'm uh, deep in a first draft of something. I find it to be a little distracting. You, you can go back and find, oh, this section sounds like, you know, uh, she was clearly reading Americana when she mm-hmm. wrote this section and she was reading The Sympathizer when she wrote this section. So um, that's the only time I try to avoid it. You know, I do, I do have my favorites. Like, you know, if I'm sick and I stay home, I want to watch Lord of the Rings and I want to read Chaim Potok. And that's what I do. But, um, but I think we live in a time of so many, so many voices that never used to be heard, being heard in publishing, not nearly enough. There's not near enough of a correction, but, but I could read all day and all night and still not, um, uh, run through these amazing voices. And I'm just starting to do a better job also of reading more in translation. There's like an embarrassment of riches just in the English language. Um, but then your world opens so much more mm-hmm. when you read things in translation. And so I'm just starting to really make a point to try to balance my reading lists with also with works in translation. It's interesting. I was listening to a podcast um, just the other day um, by the Shalom Hartman Institute, and it was about what are people reading or watching or cooking in quarantine. And um, they were focusing on Israeli movies, TV, um, you know, how this is like sort of a phenomenon, and especially with Unorthodox on Netflix, which is actually a German production. But um, but this idea of Jewish characters, Israeli actors, and and um, themes and storylines. Um, I wonder, have you dabbled in any of that? Is there anything that's grabbing you at this time, or any show that that really sort of made you feel a connection um, from a very deep Jewish place, or anything? Well, I think like everybody, I'm obsessed with Shtisel and and unorthodox. I will say Shtisel has a particular place in my heart because. Um, uh, my youngest son is named Akiva, um, as is as is the main character on that show. Yeah, um, and it just happens to be, you know, it's good for me personally. I'm about to try to sell a book that's set in the Orthodox world. I'm very happy that these things have had a lot of um, popularity. <laughs> you know, and unorthodox is maybe a, a little bit more complicated. I think there's been a lot of good, smart writing about how, what is it, what does it mean to Jews? What does it mean to the outside world? Mm-hmm. Why didn't we see any of the positive aspects of the Satmar community? Mm-hmm. But to me, watching these does remind me that I'm part of a much bigger family. Mm-hmm. And and as, as, as deep as the divisions and differences might be between me and the people who populate these shows, um, they're, they're, you know, we're in the same family. And I, I very much enjoy 
watching them. I, I like that other people like watching them. And I particularly like um, sort of the gentleness of, of Stiesel. And as with like all good fiction, mm-hmm. getting a, a normalized view into a really different a really different culture is so valuable for building empathy. Absolutely. Well, we could continue talking about this. There have been many shows that I've been consuming um, during this time, but I think we need to pivot to um, what we can offer to our listeners today. We usually end our interviews with um, a question to our guests about what permission slip you might give our listeners on this path toward meaning and purpose. Um, I wonder what advice you might have to offer today. Just to think about what really matters to you. My, my sister who makes huge, huge impacts in her life and her work. She, she works in diversity, equity, and inclusion and, and in a number of other ways. I remember once I said something to her about, I didn't mean it to be directed at her, but about the way shrimp are fished or something. And she said to me, you know what, this just can't be my thing. And I think it hit me so deeply that you have to think about what matters to you. And it doesn't have to be something that saved the world. That's like saved the world. We have tiny insignificant lives. And if you can find something that matters to you, that helps in any small way to decrease the suffering of other beings on this earth. So what a gift that is. Absolutely. And no matter how much you might care about it, um, but, but just to find, to, to spend time thinking about what really matters to you. I love that. That's a beautiful note to end on. So Jessica McCormick, thank you so much for being on the Make Meaning Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning Podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard here, join us over at makemeaning.org to discover how you can add more meaning to your life. And hey, if you like our conversations, please subscribe and share this episode with the meaningful people in your world.